What's up, people? This one has been in the works for quite some time, and I couldn't be more excited. This week, I had the great pleasure of chatting with Galen Watts, whom I personally think is one of the most interesting young academics and budding public intellectuals, along with Matt McManus, whom I've been raving about endlessly on the pod since discovering his work on postmodern conservatism. That said, I first discovered Galen's work through a co-authored op-ed piece he wrote with McManus over at Arrow Magazine entitled How the Engaged Left Can Argue with the Right back in 2019 when he was still completing his PhD under the great political philosopher Will Kalika. Galen's work has hit me on so many levels due to my background in religious studies and interest in the life of Michael Brooks, Robert Bella, and many other subjects as you will hear shortly. As per his research bio online, his primary area of specialization is in the history of religion and culture in the late 1960s and beyond. Though primary culture sociologist, his scholarship blurs the boundaries between sociology and philosophy. He uses qualitative methods, participant observations, and interviews to engage with and reflect on key social and political theoretical questions, the nature of modernity, the quest for justice, and what it means to be human. His doctoral thesis the Religion of the Heart, Self-Solidarity, and the Sacred and Romantic Liberal Modernity examined the shift from religion to spirituality and liberal democracies, often known as the spiritual turn, and its socio-political implications. Drawing from empirical research in both spiritual but not religious and charismatic Christian study participants in Canada, he identified an enduring cultural structure underlying talk of spirituality in contemporary Western societies, which he calls the religion of the heart. Challenging secularization and rational choice approaches in the study of religion, Galen advances a distinct cultural sociological approach to the sociology of contemporary religion, one that vividly brings into view the changing nature of religion in the 21st century. That said, hope you all enjoy our conversation. And like usual, make sure to check out my Medium page for further reading, references, and notes. Cheers. All right. Well, here we are. Galen, thank you so much. Uh, like I was just saying, I'm a huge fan of your work, um, and uh, this is just a great opportunity for me. I've been I've been thinking about your work um, in dialogue with a few other thinkers, collaborators of yours. So I'm really hoping to kind of dig into that uh, and uh, just have a conversation, broad conversation about your new book, obviously that just came. Well, relatively came out. I guess when did the official publication publication date come out? It came out in April in the UK, and it just came out recently uh, in North America. Gotcha. You know, I think in the past few weeks, actually. Okay, because I, I managed to get an electronic copy of it, so I've been reading that. I read it over the course of the summer. Uh, and the title is The Spiritual Turn, The Religion of the Heart, and the Making of Romantic Liberal Modernity. Mm -hmm. And it was a fantastic read. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, well, one, because, I mean, my background is actually officially in uh, religious studies. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, I mean, and you touched on so many themes and subjects and authors that have inspired me over the years, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, including, obviously, your your PhD uh, supervisor, Will Kim Kimlicka. Well, 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just uh, <laughs> to know that he's in the background of this work as well is, is, uh, is just a, a huge, uh, uh, a huge interest to me, but it's also a huge honor to go and meet one of his students and stuff like that and sit down with you and have a chat. Um, and well, let, I me, mean, let me just, I, sorry, I was just going to say, I just, I'm really happy to be here and, uh, you know, thank you very much for the opportunity Eric. I mean, it's a yeah. very strange thing to hear somebody say that they're a fan. I, I mean, I, it doesn't <laughs> normally happen and, um, it's, it's very nice. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, in Robert Bella seems to have had a huge influence on you as well. And he's, Indeed. uh, over the course of my religious studies, I mean, it was just somebody that I just looked up to tremendously. And anytime I was sitting down writing a paper or thinking, I was always going through his 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 way of framing things and his his work is is just a huge inspiration for me. So and I can feel that coming through your work. So <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah. I was definitely trying to channel uh, channel uh my inner Bella. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess I'll just start off a bit as well in terms of how I discovered your work. Um, Because originally, I mean, I discovered your work through uh, your kind of your online collaboration with Matt McManus in terms of a few articles that you guys uh, wrote on the new engage left or what you guys are calling the new engage left. And uh, again, that was very inspirational for me as well to go and see that the way you guys were articulating that. And I think you guys were really tapping into a particular moment. Um, And the other individual, and it's actually one of the main reasons why I kind of launched this podcast is Michael Brooks. Hmm. Uh, So when I'm reading your work or (laughs) read Matt's work, I'm always kind of reading it in dialogue with Michael Brooks and some of the work that he was doing as well. Um, so I guess my first question to you is, I mean, how did you kind of get, uh, turned on to the idea of studying, uh, you know, the idea of spirituality and, you know, obviously in terms of the, well, the not religious, but spiritual sort of demographic. I mean, how did that come about for you, uh, yeah. over the course of your studies? So it's a great question and I'm going to try and, and be relatively brief because because this is the kind of question that opens up all (laughs) kinds of cans um so you know i would say that um so i did a undergrad in philosophy uh at queens and at the time uh, in my undergrad i was really interested in political theoretical or political philosophical questions um i was really interested in egalitarianism and uh, liberalism, kind of big questions about liberalism. And, you know, that that sort of had me in the world of Charles Taylor and Rawls and that kind of stuff. And uh, But then, you know, for, for kind of having had been personal experiences um, throughout my undergrad that led me to really sort of, in a way, it kind of opened up my mind to questions of religion, which had never prior to that been on my radar. Um, I grew up in a really, I, I usually describe it as a kind of a religious home. It wasn't, you know, religion just was not a topic. It wasn't that we disliked it or that we were kind of against it. We just, just did not enter into my consciousness. And it was kind of, you know, out of what happened during my undergrad, you know, I had some difficult experiences that led me to become really interested in questions of religion. Um, just personally. Um, and I, 
you know, I, I was, so I had this background interest in kind of political philosophical questions about justice and equality. And then I had some quite personal issues um, that led me to become interested in religion and soon also interested in, in, you know, what today goes by spirituality. You know, there's a whole sort of section in the bookstore about spirituality. Mm. And, uh, and so I, you know, became acquainted with that section quite closely. Um, and, and so at first it was more a kind of personal interest and in, in trying to, you know, figure out my own kind of issues. And, and then in the, the last year of my, um, of my undergrad, as I said, I was still in philosophy. I actually came across a book that connected a whole bunch of things that I had never connected before. And, and you know, this relates back to Bella. So I read Habits mm. of the Heart. Um, oh, nice. It was a book that really, and, and I, you know, I talk about this in the first chapter of, of my book, Habits of the Heart really, it hit me hard. Um, something about it, both in terms of the style of it, the tone, the way it's written, um, it's very kind of, um, uh, you know, you're in dialogue, I think. You, you really get the sense that you're, you're being, you know, take sort of, welcomed in as, as, a, as a kind of conversation partner. Um, mm. And I really like that. And then also, you know, just the, the substance of it, it's about, I mean, the subtitle is Individualism and Commitment in American Life. Um, you know, and, and I just saw myself so clearly in this book. Um, <laughs> yeah. And in, in a way that actually really was quite disturbing. Like it, it, it made a lot of sense to me um, and it actually kind of helped me understand some of the kind of personal issues that I was going through. And it, and it, it also connected, um, it was the first time I really encountered a kind of social scientific um, or sociological uh, approach to thinking about spirituality, this mm -hmm. thing that, as I said, I really only had a kind of personal interest in um, up until that point. And what, what that book did for me, which became kind of really central uh, as I went into grad school was it connected this interest in spirituality, specifically kind of spirituality without religion with larger questions of liberalism um, and individualism that, as I said, I'd always kind of had an interest in, but they were more sort of academic here. They, those two things. So like my own personal experiences and my interest in spirituality became in some way, it, you know, they, they, those were implicated in these larger questions about liberalism and ultimately, you know, what a good society is um, that I had just never thought to connect. Um, and, and so that book, the, in the way it did it in this very kind of personal way, right? It wasn't just this kind of abstract intellectual or philosophical analysis. It was a real, it was interweaving into, you know, personal narratives. Uh, it was drawing on, on, um, on, particular people's experiences, ordinary people's experiences in America, but, but, you know, that did, made, made no difference. I, you know, I, I think I, I identified nevertheless, um, despite being Canadian. And so anyways, that it was that. So I saw like an interest in spirituality as a, as a sort of, um, a way into actually connecting these, like my own kind of personal questions with these larger philosophical questions that I had about, liberalism and individualism um, and the good society. Um, 
And so, you know, I, in a way, it's still odd to me to try and, you know, sometimes I, when people ask me what the book's about, I could say, oh, well, it's a book about spirituality and the sort of shift from religion to spirituality. But in many ways, it's 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 actually much bigger than that to me, at least. It's a it's oh, a book it's about so much larger than that. No, right, for sure, right? Yeah, and, and but, spirituality provides a kind of way into those yeah. those other questions. Yeah. No, and th the reason why I, I bring that up is, uh, well, because I mean, one, I felt it was your book. The way you're describing Bella's book is almost the way I felt reading your book. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and another way is uh, as well as basically in terms of how it described Michael Brooks in his particular mm. way, because mm. Michael Brooks, I mean, had a very huge sort of cultural moment and people describe him sort of as spiritual, but not religious. And yet there's another group of people that really go out and latch on to his sort of Marxist leftist sort of street cred, right? I mean, as a, as a spokesperson for, for Marxism. So when I discovered your writing, your public writing, your back and forth with McManus, I thought it was such a, an interesting way to go out and, and to talk and, and about this issue because Matt talks about it a lot in terms of individual expressivism, and you're talking about it in terms of some sort of religion of the heart or spirituality. Um, and yet I feel that, you know, and this is something that Michael Brooks, I feel, was always trying to go and describe and, and talk about in his, his work, his public work. Um, so I guess because the other thing, too, that I, I find really interesting well, that I find you attack, well, not attack, but you address much more um, in an overt fashion, I guess, than Matt, is this idea of the, the myth of disenchantment. Mm -hmm. That, uh, you know, like the, there, there's this undercurrent in your work, basically, that, you know, that the liberal modernism or the liberal, you know, romantic liberalism, the way you describe it, is essentially uh, trying to fend off you know, secularism in a certain way, but also trying to fend off this myth of disenchantment. And I know you're familiar as well with uh, Jason Storm's work in terms of the myth of disenchantment. Indeed. So, <laughs> uh, so I was wondering maybe if you can talk a bit about that, because, you know, T Charles Taylor tries to go and talk about this in terms of his malaise and modernity. Uh, you know, Bella obviously tries to go out and address this as well in terms of his work. And I know that, you know, you're approaching this from a very sociological type question. And obviously, you know, your book actually opens up with an epigraph to, uh, to Durkheim, essentially, you know, that, uh, you know, that religion is not going to go out and disappear. Essentially, it's going to go out and transform. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would just be curious to hear, you know, like how all these different facets are informing your work and how this, you know, this back and forth with Matt McManus started you know, in terms of addressing this idea that there is some type of cultural moment that's happening that is emerging possibly on the left that's much more interested or open to the idea of spirituality as well, or to talk about maybe the problems of secularism and modernity and, and capitalism in, in, in general. So I was curious to see, you know, like how that was in the background informing your thinking and, and where you're, you're, you sit with that currently now as well. Yeah. So, okay. So, I think the, you know, for me, in a way, so let me try and connect what I, so what I was saying earlier to, as a way of kind of going into this. So, you know, I, I was having some kind of personal issues, which is what sparked my interest in spirituality. And, and in a way, I think that's important because it did, it, 
you know, when I was thinking about issues of, uh, of issues of justice and egalitarianism within a kind of political philosophical frame, the question of disenchantment just like, it just doesn't, doesn't surface, right? It's not something philosophers generally think about, but, but to me, it's, it, it became, it became central. Um, this, this need for sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of like ultimate or transcendent meaning, something that, um, that gives us a reason to, to, to sort of get up in the morning and also that that gives that gives kind of as I said meaning to uh, to our lives right and 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 locates us in, in some kind of larger picture whatever that that might be whether it's metaphysical or, or otherwise and so I wanted to try and be able to to think about these kind of political philosophical questions in um, while at the same time holding this concern about um, enchantment, and and you know when you talk about the myth of disenchantment, and this is what you know Jason's work is is kind of trying to to point to, um, we're really talking about this idea, which often is attributed to to Weber, Max Weber, um, that you know as we move into modernity, basically, um, kind of we live in this sort of uh, this world where magic and mystery and religion with it all kind of dissolve right and and so ultimate meeting uh becomes uh a, a kind of a, a non-option and sort of nihilism reigns right we live in this sort of ultra rationalist um um kind of mechanical universe um and this was something that that Faber um uh wrote about in a, a famous lecture um called science as, Vo as a vocation and i mean Jason has done work on this, and I, I've recently published an article on this about how it's actually a lot more complicated, even within Weber. Um, uh, you know what he was, what he actually meant by that is a lot more complicated than than people think. But I think the the common view is that he was saying, you know, now that we're modern, we're not religious, we're not, you know, we don't believe in magic. You know, mystery has kind of just dissipated, and this has real implications for you know for for people because you know we. We might crave meaning, but you know we no longer believe in that stuff, kind of thing. Um, and you know, Jason and so I, I sort of my big uh, kind of, I guess, counter argument, and I think it follows from what Jason is saying, is that it's just not empirically true uh, that we are you know, disenchanted, right? I mean, you know, you just have to point to the flourishing of conspiracy theories or any number of, you know, astrology, all these kinds of things that are not empirically verifiable that, you know, just seem to flourish in modernity. Um, so, so we, and, and spirituality, of course, another example, right? So part of this is, um, is trying to show that, yes, Weber, Weber might have been right to say that there was kind of pressure in a sense in modernity, placed upon us via through sort of institutions, whether it's education or, or you know, science, to, to not enchant the world, right? To sort of live uh, or, or lean towards nihilism. But, but I think that, um, you know, my view uh, as a kind of cultural sociologist is that humans are just kind of meaning-making creatures. <laughs> and so we, we almost sort of naturally enchant the world. It's, it's very difficult to live life um, without some form of kind of ultimate meeting. And, and often, um, I mean, people can do it, but it's very difficult and most don't. And so, you know, I was interested in sort of 
the different forms of enchantment that exist today. Um, and I think spirituality is a dominant one, right? That, that this move from religion to spirituality is one among other ways in which people are re-enchanting the world. This is, a, this is I think, what, what Charles Taylor ar argues as well in his book, A Secular Age, that a secular age isn't just a world where there's no religion. It's, it's what he calls a spiritual supernova, right? There are all different forms and varieties of, of kind of religious expression, which, um, um, you know, so there's a kind of plural, pluralization of enchantments. And um, so, so, you know, to, to sort of try and connect that then to, to the question of, of, say, what's happening on the left, I mean, you know, you could say that there is a, an awakening and potentially, you know, arguably maybe among younger, um, younger people, like millennials, younger, um, of an awareness of this, of this, this of the need for enchantment, both as a like a deeply human need, but also a kind of collective need, like something that is central to the fostering of collective solidarity and um, and moral action, right, um, and and political uh, action, right. So and activism. So I, I think that um, if there is a, a an emerging cultural moment, and you know, I think that I guess I would say that Matt is probably more. Um, invested in that idea than I am. I'm not, I'm not sure how, how much I'm uh, I'm committed to that. But but I guess I would say that you know I'd like there to be, and um, and I think that you know any any successful movement uh, is going to be one that acknowledges this deeply human need for uh, for enchantment, right? To to sort of seek a larger to to locate people within some larger narrative and some larger um picture yeah oh, beautiful yeah no and i mean this is why i mean i, I keep bringing up michael brooks as well i mean because michael brooks was deeply invested uh in kind of buddhism in the west right i mean he was a self-described buddhist practicing buddhist kind of sort of like the sam harris but he was obviously very much you know a marxist and on the left Right. And yet he wasn't willing to go out. He, he would actually just go out and, you know, when he would be talking to his more kind of materialist Marxist friends that, you know, he would be sitting around encouraging them. No, you need to go out and meditate. You need to go out and take up these various forms of practices. Right. And we need to go out and fuse these 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 larger questions of meaning and not let the right go out and co-opt these these ideas or particularly religion itself. Right. Because the right, right. usually is very good at going and co-opting. Uh, particularly Christianity right now. But I mean, he was like, no, very much the way you're describing it is that, you know, like there's a variety now of not only of religious experiences that are out there, but there's a variety of religious traditions, right? So obviously it could give problems to eclecticism, but it could also go and open people up that they're particularly allergic to various forms of traditional religious traditions to go and pick up another one. Right, and this is what Charles Taylor goes out and taps into beautifully as well, in terms of you know the the way you're describing it in there, in terms of a supernova type idea. Um, so I guess my question though is that because you choose you chose to go and focus in on the idea of romanticism, and I'm kind of wondering why because there's also a big flourishing or people that are deeply interested in German idealism or idealism proper, and Taylor taps into idealism, you know, obviously his work on Hegel and stuff like that. So I was wondering why you focus more on the romanticism aspect, because I feel that there is an infusion of idealism throughout your writing and you, you obviously wouldn't be allergic to it. Uh, 
some because obviously there's people like Slavoj Zizek right now that's you know written quite a bit on German idealism on Hegel and uh, uh, and Schelling as well. Um, and that's actually been another theme as well, kind of around my podcast is that, um, you know, that, you know, why, why are all these young people not only interested in spirituality, but why is there's, there seem to be this huge cohort of people that are flocking to, to like, to, to Hegel and German idealism right now and stuff like that, particularly on the left. Right. Um, and it's funny to me as well that, you know, you have Zizek and Jordan Peterson out there that, you know, kind of sort of the debate of the ages, whatever we can go and even call it that. But um, so, yeah, I was wondering why the term liberal uh, romantic liberalism and particularly romantic liberal modernity, instead of kind of talking about ideas of postmodernity or why, why did you decide to go and frame it specifically in that category? Because, I mean, when I was reading you, I was like, well, Matt's talking about the rise of the new right, postmodern conservatism. Um, and to me, it seems like maybe on the left, it's this is some sort of variety of maybe of left postmodernity sort of way. So I was wondering why you decide to go just with, you know, little romantic liberalism and, you know, attaching it specifically to the modern project. Great. Okay. So it's a great question. Um, and I'm, I'm glad I have the opportunity to, to talk about this. So Okay, so so part of it has to do with the fact that, um, and so I think that romanticism is. So I guess I would put it this way, and this is where I guess I would probably disagree with Matt. Although you know I don't, I haven't read enough of his work to to sort of know his, uh, and it seems like he produces it so quickly that I can't, I wouldn't be able to keep up anyway. So. Um, <laughs> He he writes faster so, than I can read. No, that, exactly, that man is a exactly. machine when it comes to business <laughs> stuff. Yeah. So, um, but I guess my basic view, you know, it's not just semantics. It's not just that. Um, so the reason why, I, so I'm a cultural sociologist by kind of identification, and 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 what that means is that I I basically think um, that. Uh, that culturally speaking, there are not that much, there's not really that many differences between, say, the quote unquote modern um, project and the quote unquote postmodern um, uh, uh, era. So, um, I, and so I'm, I'm quite skeptical of the idea that we have, uh, like, you know, that we have a civic decline of meta narratives or something like this, or uh, if anything, I would say we just have a sort of plurality of of meta narratives. Um, and I think romanticism is probably one of the the dominant ones. So, you know, I, I would follow uh, Charles Taylor's kind of genealogy of modernity, seeing expressivism, romantic expressivism as kind of a central facet of the modern identity. Right. Okay. I mean, he has he has a lot of books on this. You know, a short the shortest is the Ethics of Authenticity or the you know, Malays of Modernity, where he talks about how expressivism is is kind of central to modernity. It always has been, and um, and the 1960s was really just a kind of revival. It was just this sort of you know just flourishing of romantic sentiment. And I would argue we were kind of in another romantic revival um, of a certain kind, and and so. When I look out and I see, um, you know, what's happening both on the left, you know, as you say, this growing interest in German idealism, Hegel, and, and so forth, and then on the right, you know, what Matt calls postmodern conservatism, 
I don't I don't necessarily see it as um, as postmodern. I just see it as a as a kind of new flourishing of this facet of the modern identity at that which is romanticism um, in a, a, a progressive and a kind of you know. Uh, Conservative seems an odd term because there's nothing really conservative about <laughs> Donald Trump, right? It's it seems more, um, uh, what what's the term? I mean, wild. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Rear guard. I'm, in any case, it's it's um, you know, so you have different versions of romanticism, and in a way, this is also important. You know, why did I choose the term romantic liberalism? So, so one is that I wanted to be able to trace. A tradition. I don't think that this is totally new. In fact, you know, I would agree with someone like Patrick Deneen descriptively to say that this is, you know, this is kind of an outgrowth of liberalism, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, million liberalism, um, liberalism um, of a certain kind that kind of, you know, so it, it has the same sort of seeds of the liberal tradition, but it it did take a slightly different shift in the 60s. And it, and it kind of, um, this focus on expressivity, on, on expressive freedom, became central to the liberal tradition in that in that era, and and it is today. So I wanted to be able to trace this tradition and talk about it as a tradition, and I also wanted to be able to kind of draw, in, in so doing, draw sort of boundaries around what is a good form and what it, you know, to, to, for lack of a better term, what's a good form and what's a bad form. Like I think that there's something. Uh, you know, this is the normative political philosopher in me. I think that there's something um, noble and, uh, I guess, defensible uh, to a romantic liberalism. So, you know, one that that you know is romantic in the sense that it's 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 sees as as kind of core ideal as being expressive freedom, but is liberal in the sense, in a number of senses, but but really in the sense that it kind of respects moral equality. And it has a sort of private-public distinction at its at its core. Um, that I see as as really central. And I and I also think just empirically, if you want to understand spirituality, you know, it, it may be useful to note um, to your listeners that this isn't some kind of marginal phenomenon. So something like forty percent of Canadians identify as spiritual but not religious, right? It's like a it's like a, an extremely common signifier. And um, and so I'm trying to capture something that I think is widespread. Um, so so it's not really like I I can sort of you know I I really I, I let the data decide what I was going to look at and then I gave it a name romantic liberalism and then I just sort of just wanted to give her some kind of normative justification or defense of that of that empirical um, development. Gotcha. Okay. Because I mean, because you talk about romantic liberalism, and obviously, I mean, it seems almost like your preferred term for it would be to go and describe it as some sort of religion of the heart, or maybe using Robert Bella in terms of some form of civil religion, possibly that seems to be. So I would say they're actually they're different. So um, okay. So this is where you know it, it could say, it could get complicated trying to explain. This, yeah. But basically, the way I would put it is that. Um, what I call the religion of the heart is this form of spirituality that I think a lot of people have. And it's a very personal kind of private approach to spirituality, one about seeking meaning in your own individual life. And, and is largely, in that sense, kind of therapeutic and more kind of concentrated on your own private um, sphere. 
Now, the sociologist in me says that there's something good about that, that people should have the you know, opportunity to sort of pursue their own private spiritual paths, but that on its own, it's not, um, it's not sufficient to bring about a good society. And so I would see like Bella's conception of civil religion as being this kind of complementary but different approach form of religion. Yeah, I don't see okay. them as, as, as mutually exclusive. In fact, I would argue the opposite, that they work really well together. So, you know, when you are at home or, you know, you want to um, go to a, a meditation class, you're, you're engaged in this more the religion of the heart um, type spirituality. But when you go out and you protest in the streets, say, um, in the name of, you know, justice, um, you know, you're, 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 and, and you're, there's a kind of religious dimension of that to that. It's more of the civil religion kind, right? So they both have different you know, it, to put it in sociological terms, they have different sort of functions in a, in, a, in a liberal society, both of which are necessary, but which they you cannot sort of, you would be, um, I guess it would be a mistake to, to try and um, exclude one. In fact, they, they almost need each other, right? Yeah. No, beautiful. No, no, for sure. I mean, because, I mean, they seem to be overlapping to me as well in terms of, but obviously, you know, like all these various terms. I guess because, I mean, reading your work, I mean, because um, Matt, I guess, reading Matt's work in the idea, like he really taps into this idea that there's we sort of have entered some sort of postmodern moment or almost some sort of postmodern, <laughs> you know, there's the, he, he interprets it in terms of some form of cultural sphere that seems to have developed out of modernity. Um, but I mean, you know, I could see why there's a lot of people, maybe even people like Bruno Latour or Habermas, you know, that they, they kind of hint at that, you know, no, the problem is that we've never really been modern type idea. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, in a way, I guess I would, I would probably put myself more in that camp. Okay. Um, you know, I think it's also that if, if I, if I read Matt, right. I think his influences are slightly different. You know, he's coming out of the sort of Harvey Jameson um, school of thinking about postmodernism. Um, and so, you know, it's tied to his particular kind of aesthetic and, uh, particular, I mean, I, I, again, I, I, this is me speculating. I, I wouldn't, I don't know his work well enough to be able to, to say for sure, but, but certainly I, I, as, as sort of somebody coming from cultural sociology, we are more in the camp where we're thinking there's actually a lot more continuity between modernity and so-called post-modernity as people want to admit, right? Yeah. Um, at least culturally. I mean, you know, things like technology do change the, the quote, you know, the, the, as it were, na nature of the game. Like, so, so there are kind of differences and there's social structural differences. But culturally speaking, it's not clear to me that, um, that, we're, that there's that much difference. Gotcha. Okay. Because, I mean, obviously, Jason Storm has come up. <clears throat> excuse me, you know, with the idea of some, some sort of meta-modernity now, right? Uh, I'm not yeah. sure if you've read his most recent book and stuff like that. So, I mean, so, people have started talking about the idea of some post-modernity, post right? We seem to be entered in. Um, so, so, I mean... I, I mean I, let me just... I, I haven't, so, I haven't read that book. Okay, I got you. It's on my list. Um, but, you know, so one, one way of... But, I mean, so I, I haven't read that. I'm very, very interested in reading it because I, I take... Jason to be interested in giving us a kind of intellectual framework for thinking about um, 
reviving ideals and normative commitments in a post-postmodern situation, right? Um, where, you know, skepticism is not the sort of the the default or the not the sort of reigning um, uh, uh, imperative. And I think, so if, you know, I guess sometimes I think that the, the conversation about post-modernity is seems to me somewhat, um, it seems to me somewhat, it, it, it reflects too much preoccupations that are very, very specific to intellectuals and not mm -hmm. specific to the, the vast majority of, uh, of other people. Like, it seems to me like it, it really has to do with a particular kind of intellectual uh, climate where, um, so, and, and I do think that if you read, you know, the kind of classic philosoph um, philosophical takes on postmodernity, post it is often referring to sort of the conditions of intellectual production, right? Like, you know, how do academics justify their their work and you know how a scientist just like and that that to me is they're interesting philosophical questions and Jason is doing work to try and provide us with a a framework to be able to justify this stuff that doesn't fall back into the skepticism of, of postmodern uh, work or or style but but in terms of empirical analysis of what's going on in the world around us I'm not convinced that the concept of postmodernity is is all that useful only because, as I said, I think that it, it tends to reflect the preoccupations and concerns of, a, of, of intellectual, the intellectual classes. Gotcha. Okay. No, totally. Yeah. No, I mean, well, because even uh, Jason's work in terms of mid and modernity, it's interesting because he's much more interested in the idea of uh, kind of superseding the idea of critical theory. Right, right, as an approach within, you know, religious studies. And I'm so behind that because one of the main reasons why I wasn't interested in going out and doing graduate studies and religious studies was this constant deconstructive thunder that was everywhere. Right. It leads right. to, you know, to nowhere. And it just like it was just so like to me so toxic and I wanted nothing to go out and do with it once I was done. Because I, I literally walked into university. <laughs> enchanted i want to go back you know and here i was you know at the time as well in my early 20s and stuff like that i had gone up to the montreal zen center you know i actually studied you know zen for over 10 years up at the montreal zen center but once my degree was done with me like i like my idea of religion just completely dissolved and like <laughs> i had just, lost all enchantment just falling apart right <laughs> well i mean and i do think that you know education is is a source of disenchantment right <laughs> i mean yeah it, it it really is and and religious education uh, funny enough i mean not not sort of theological education but yeah but the academic study thereof deeply disenchanting yeah absolutely no so i mean so that's an interesting kind of uh sidebar to to that as well I guess because the other thing too, too, that I find really interesting in your work is that, I mean, not only are you kind of addressing the idea of the myth of disenchantment or, you know, what is enchantment instead of just kind of tacking along the secularism line, which I find, I mean, is useful uh, the way Charles Taylor has gone out and framed it, but the way you kind of talked about it in your work along with Jason, I find it to be more palpable and uh, alive to me. Um, the other question too that I had is, you know, how and why did you get interested in the idea of kind of the wellness side and addiction treatment and recovery to uh, to religion and spirituality? Because that's a, another tack that I find it's, it's really interesting because it's not just a question of meaning. It's actually a 
question of, you know, well-being and, you know, human flourishing along yeah. with, you know, larger questions of meaning. And I would even throw in transcendence, you know, and, and stuff like that. Uh, because there's tons of people within religious studies now that are obviously interested in the psychedelic kind of twist of things and the idea of consciousness and stuff like that. So I was curious, how did that come about for you through, you know, through your work? Why did you choose to go and focus in like on 12 step and AA and that type of stuff? How did that come about? Yeah. So, so it's useful to, to note some of the, the kind of common, um, criticisms in the academic literature of spirituality, because in a way they became kind of, they framed the the, the project, right? I, I had to, you know, who was I, um, who was I responding to? So, so a dom one dominant criticism um, is generally kind of from, say, we'll say, religious conservatives, right? Um, you know, either con conservative or communitarian. This kind of view that the shift from religion to spirituality is really one that means it's it's it it's kind of the the flourishing of narcissism of mm. kind of you know rabid individualism uh, of a complete rejection of tradition of morality right um and this is and so it goes along with the very common conservative story about the 60s right where you know everything fell apart after after the 60s um so that was kind of one uh critique or, or set of criticisms that I really wanted to respond to. And I wanted to think about what particular case studies could help me think through those, those criticisms. Uh, and then the other one was actually from the left, um, from a more, you know, there's kind of neo-Marxist versions, and then there's kind of a post-structuralist version, but it's basically the idea that spirituality is, you know, to, to use a term that's actually the title of a, of a well-known book in this field, uh, it's the opiate of the bourgeoisie. Mm. In other words, um, you know, when people today, you know, middle class people today are interested in spirituality, they're really looking for a kind of an escapist, individualistic form of religion that's completely uh, in line with a sort of consumerist lifestyle that asks nothing of them in terms of sort of changing their politics or changing the structures of society. It's a purely accommodationist message that. Um, you know, that is politically quietus, basically, and, and passive. And, and so this is, again, one of those kind of criticisms that I was really wrestling with, because, you know, one that I could sort of see the truth of in, in, certain, in, in, in certain ways, and, and I could recognize its, uh, its veracity, but at the same time felt was, um, was, was oversimplified um, in, uh, in, in a lot of ways. And so, the AA um, case study was a fascinating one because it, it it became this 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 way of thinking through both of these criticisms, mm, these very dominant yeah. criticisms, right? Um, and and sort of putting putting some kind of empirical bones, so to speak, on 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 this theoretical analysis, right? You have these two big critiques from the right and the left, which are very much they are philosophical or theoretical critiques. And I'm like, well, why don't, why don't we test these out? Why don't we see what's going on in one of these places, right? And so, you know, the interesting thing about AA is that it's it's both, yes, a clear evidence of a shift from religion to spirituality. I mean, everyone they calls themselves spiritual. It's really focused on your own spiritual recovery. But at the same time, it's extremely communal. And, and it works in this way that is, um, you know, deeply 
moral, and you see this in, 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 in covered uh, alcoholics and members of, of the program and the fellowship. So, you know, in that sense, it was, it was a clear kind of counter, counter sort of argument to the conservative uh, criticism, right? Yeah. Like here's an example of spirituality, which is quite the opposite of what you're saying it is, um, even though it still works according to the same, you know, it's still individualistic, it still focuses on individuals kind of pursuing it, but, but at the same time, it's not like it's not just a, you know, members call it selfish, but it's actually not selfish in 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 its kind of implications and, and in its consequences. Um, and then on the other side, I was interested in AA as this kind of place where you both had this very therapeutic personal dimension, which um, which of course is central to recovery, right? The alcoholics who join AA become um, they, they do it because they want to get better. They want to recover from alcoholism. So there's this obvious therapeutic dimension. And, and you know, the, the left-wing critique of spirituality would say, well, yeah, that's all it is. It's just about people getting better so that they can go out into a corrupt, you know, unjust Capitalist world. system. <laughs> right, start exactly. consuming so, the end. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. And, and what I found uh, at, the, at, the, uh, at the fellowship that I did a year's work of fieldwork at was quite the opposite, that it wasn't that they were just going back out to the world um, and just and just sort of like, you know, passively conforming to, uh, you know, the dictates of capitalist modernity, but rather, um, you know, were, were, AA was giving them the emotional and psychological resources to be able to become engaged citizens, right? So I call it in the book, a generative institution. It's like, and I don't think it's the only one, but but I, I I think that we need these kinds of institutions, these places where people can sort of recover and uh, and deal with personal issues, so that they can join public life and uh, and become you know productive, engaged citizens. So I guess you know in, in in bringing that to light, my hope was to try and shed light on this this important uh, function of these kind of more therapeutic uh, type approaches to spirituality, um, which I think the sort of leftist critique completely misses. Right? Totally. No, for sure. No. And I mean, you, you, I mean, you're lecturing to the, <laughs> the converted, of course. Of course yeah, I, I mean, in Ernie Kurtz and William White are actually some of my other kind of heroes, uh, the work that they've done on 12 step and, uh, obviously AA and all 12 forms of 12 step recovery. I mean, because it's not just AA anymore. I mean, you have Buddhist fellowships that have kind of, of course, adopted yeah. it. I mean, there's just a plethora of it. Um, I mean, the other thing too, is that, I mean, if you looked at my podcast, I mean, I recently had Sean Kelly on and I mean, he's, he, his work is completely born out of the human potential movement and humanistic psychology. So this is, I mean, you're just preaching to the choir even more. <laughs> in terms of this. But this is one of the reasons why I want to connect with you because when I do interact with guys like Matt and stuff like that, I mean his his whole circle of influence and stuff like this is very much on that, right? It's like it's a Marxist critique of religion, right? It's it's the opiate and the masses. It doesn't go out and provide any sort of function. If anything, it's just, you know, it's just sublimating or alienating people into, you know, what capitalism really is in terms of that. Um, and like you, I mean, that was what I was faced in religious studies all the time, right? Is that I had to go and take one or two of these narratives and apply it to whatever I was studying. And at the end, I was just like, there's no way I can't, I, I can't do this. So, but my other home was actually, cause I double majored and my other major is actually in the applied human science department. 
And, and they're basically, they're counseling psychologists, clinical psychologists. Um, so their approach is much more functional, right? I mean, it's, it's all about, you know, like how can we actually go out and help people grow, develop and, and get a greater sense of meaning. And exactly like you describe is, you know, to, to go out and facilitate people's participation in, <laughs> in democracy, go out there, right, right. Get involved. And I mean, and, and obviously use the, the, the functions of what mutual aid support groups like AA can go out and, and foster and help. I mean, it could go out and help you maintain a sense of peace while you're going out and, and going out and doing that. And obviously, you know, not sliding into to substance use or burnout through whatever type of work that you're actually going out and doing. Uh, so, I mean, to read your work, it's just like, I'm like, yes, <laughs> I'm like somebody's out there trying to go out and address, you know, this, this idea of on the left and on the right of this particular critique of religion. And it's just, I just think it's a shame. Yeah, I, I mean, it's I think that the left today really needs to. I mean, every time I've interacted with Matt, I keep I keep kind of poking and prodding him to follow Michael Brooks' lead. That is that you know, religion is could go out and be a fantastic vehicle for the left to go out and mobilize. I mean, there is a Catholic left, there is a Christian left, more broadly speaking, you know, that are interested in these questions as well. Like, why aren't you guys bridging into it, particularly as academics? I mean, I wouldn't say that's necessarily everybody. Um, so, um, I guess, cause the other thing too, around all this, cause obviously you studied under Wilk, uh, Kinlicka. Um, so I was wondering, cause he, his take on liberalism is quite interesting as well. And I was wondering how that came into influence all of this and how did you bridge what we're talking about now in terms of religion and spirituality with him? Like, he doesn't seem like, well, I mean, granted Taylor, had probably had a huge influence on him, but he doesn't seem to be the type that would be very interested in these types of questions around religion and stuff like that. So I was curious how, how that came about and how that bridged in eventually to, to your thinking and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that question. So, I mean, one thing I will just preface with is that, you know, you would be amazed how diverse Will's interests are. Okay. Just, <laughs> like, you know, he seems to just be, uh, this endlessly curious about lots and lots and lots and lots of things, and and his ability to connect and synthesize things is still astounds me. Um, but you know the way that I um, you know kind of pitched it to him at the beginning to try and you know tell him that look, this isn't totally uh, out of left field for you. Like there is there is clear connections. Um, is that um, so I, I see, and you know, maybe I should have said this earlier, I see the, the shift from religion to spirituality um, that's taken place since the 60s as being a kind of religious um, wing of a much larger uh, shift in cultural and moral shift in society, um, which actually has more to do with the rise of romantic liberalism. Um, so I, I think that, you know, if if there's a larger narrative in the in the book, it is about this emergence of what I call romantic liberal modernity, uh, a shift that's taken place, and I think, uh, you know, goes some way to explaining everything from you know the the fact that millennials today just take it for granted that you know women and men are equal, um, that you know 
gays and lesbians and trans people deserve equal dignity and respect, right? That um, that colonial, colonialism is a very bad thing that, um, you know, like th there's all these things that have taken place since the 60s, these, these, this kind of moral shift in, 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 in liberal democracies and, and beyond, um, which I'm trying to um, put under this larger uh, conceptual umbrella that is romantic liberal modernity, um, which at its base has to do with a, a kind of shift within liberalism where you have the same two core ideals of equal uh, moral equality and individual freedom, but there's a slight shift in that understanding of freedom, which has more to do with, it's a move away from a kind of rational conception of, of freedom and a, to, towards a kind of romantic expressive conception of freedom, which really has mm, to do with, okay. with um, people being able to be who they feel themselves to be. So being able to express their true selves and also receiving recognition from whether it's others or the state, um, um, so be, you know, this is the kind of Hegelian, like, you know, being seen as, uh, uh, as who you claim yourself to be. Right. And, and that I think is also central to multiculturalism, right? If you think about, and, and if you look at Will's story of the emergence of multiculturalism, he sees it almost liberal multiculturalism, at least as, you know, we Canadians think about it as a kind of outgrowth of liberalism, where liberalism suddenly becomes conscious of the fact that individuals are not all the same, that individuals have different identities. And therefore, you know, what justice requires, equal concern and respect requires that we recognize and grant respect to people's different identities, right? Whether they are Jews, Muslims, whether they are Indian uh, or, uh, or Thai uh, or African, like, this is what the multicultural project is. It's about um, fundamentally asking what does a society that gives equal concern and respect require? And multiculturalism, liberal multiculturalism says that it requires people to have, you know, public recognition. Um, and so I think that the shift from religion to spirituality, although it seems on the surface kind of completely outside of that, um, I don't think it's outside of it at all. I think that you know, you've had this, these two things emerge at the same time because they're actually very closely connected, at least in terms of their kind of underlying moral and cultural logic. Um, it really has to do with increased recognition. Um, you know, just as the spiritual but not religious say like, you know, don't just call me a Catholic or don't just call me a Christian or, or a Muslim. Like I have my own spiritual practice that I myself want to be able to mm. pursue. Like I have my own individual path that I'm pursuing. It's not this, this larger thing that everyone else is doing. It's something unique to me. It's the same kind of thing as, as when you have, you know, um, trans people saying like, you know, re recognize me for who I am, right? Like mm. respect my individual identity. Um, give me that recognition, right? And it's important that I have the recognition that that in a in a world where you're not recognized as who you feel yourself to be, there's a certain kind of harm um, uh, perpetrated. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I mean, the idea of recognition. I, I mean, I'm happy to hear you kind of elaborate on that. Is because I mean, the reason why I brought up idealism before, right? Is I mean, it's this this idea of recognition and stuff like that. Um, so that's interesting. Okay. So I didn't realize that that within your framing of romanticism, I mean, there's some deep Hegelian thinking in there as well. Totally, totally. And gotcha. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I, I'm not speaking in 
you know, for par par partly for reasons that I want to keep the narrative somewhat welcoming, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to immediately, you know, intimidate everybody, uh, you know, coming to the book. I, I decided to leave Hegel's name out of it. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Okay, well, okay, like I knew, like obviously Taylor is in the background, and but I, I thought maybe, well, because even Robert Bella, I mean, not, I mean, obviously his uh, his uh, his work on evolution or the the idea that you know religion plays a huge factor in terms of cultural evolution. Uh, I, th I think is almost an update, a much more interesting update on the idea of just somehow retreating or going back to Hegelian type thinking, dialectical thinking. So I think his, his much more sophisticated theory <laughs> uh, or the way to go out and frame it. And that's why I love Robert Bella so much. Um, okay. So, I mean, so do you think, well, but you literally think that this is coming into being, it's not some sort of reformed liberalism in another way no i'm so i i do think that it is uh and, and i think it's evolving so like okay. there's a part of me that um so in, in one sense it's a historical analysis it's trying to make sense of what's happened since the 1960s okay um to to liberalism so you know i want to try and explain the the changes in in popular consciousness that i kind of laid out but also the legal changes and the political changes right the the, the you know the and 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 the kind of animating what I call social imaginary to the feminist movement, the environmental movement. I I want to try and give uh, uh, a kind of cultural, sociological, historical picture of what tied all of these things together and how they have kind of uh, shaped the social order that many of us today take for granted. Um, yeah. True. Now now at the same time, you know, I'm and I'm currently working on a book um, with. Uh, uh, one of my colleagues, which is looking at spirituality today, and 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 how it maybe is changing. And there's a there's a part of me that thinks that the 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 idea of romantic liberalism is increasingly um, almost under attack as well. Yeah. So I mean, that is the term. Yeah. That so that was exactly what I was going to say. But I'm always very cautious about this because it's a difficult, it's a very controversial and touchy topic like i guess you know i i do make a, a i do kind of try and defend romantic liberalism like i and i i continue to think that that's you know if i'm being honest that's just like it's me it's sort of the the you know that's the the tradition i would put myself in yeah but I, oh, I and even matt i mean matt mcmanus has, has changed his i mean he completely changes discourse but i mean he's he's framing it much more that you know particularly the socialist left needs to be no 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 we're not trying to destroy liberalism we're we're building on top of liberalism so he would actually go and self-describe himself as a, a liberal socialist much more around cb mcpherson's work and stuff like that right it's, it's i mean right. socialism would be an outgrowth of liberalism if if, if properly done and achieved in a certain way and uh, and this is where I get because when I came into Matt's work, I would I very much identified as a sort of Charles Taylor, Robert Bella, and I was said, well, you know, I I guess I am a, I'm a communitarian, <laughs> you know, and communitarianism was was a bit of a thing for a while uh, due to people, you know, and there's a left wing version of that versus a right wing version, and it was only through Matt's work, reading his work, that all of a sudden I realized, like, oh my God, like he's he's attacking communitarianism and in, in being in terms of like, th this can actually turn out to be extremely conservative. And I was like, conservative, like, what are you talking about? Like, right. And, and it could be oppressive in a certain way. If the community is too night, 
too tightly knit where the idea of individuality can go out and flourish within this tight knit community of any sort in a certain way. And that's where my kind of my mental sort of construct really got rattled reading Matt's work is like, well, wait a minute, you know, communitarianism is not so hip and cool the way, you know, uh, and then obviously Patrick Deneen's work started to hit, you know, take on a, it's, a, it's a life of its own online and stuff like that. Uh, and obviously now <laughs> me discovering your work and reading a bit more in terms of Will's work as well. So this, I mean, it's been an ongoing education for me. Um, and I appreciate <laughs> everything that you guys have been putting out there as well. So I guess my question would be, you know, like what's your take on communitarianism today? Uh, yeah. And if that's even, you know, alive or well, or is that some something that kind of came for a moment and sort of blipped? So I think that um, the liberal communitarian debates that took place in the 80s and 90s, which yeah. is where that term really kind of, you know, emerged most prominently. You know, if you go back and you read all that, and I was fascinated with that stuff, like in, in my in my undergrad, I, I read, I ate that stuff up. And <laughs> precisely for the same reason, like I really thought of myself, you know, if there was, if you had two camps and there was liberals and communitarians, well, I was, I was a communitarian, right? And, but, you know, really the, the debate actually was quite, it was really quite um, uh, specific. It was really about how you think about the nature of the self, right? Yeah. Is the, is the self, um, I mean, I'm putting in general, generalities, but it, is the self atomistic, right? So this is the kind of, this is Sandel's view of, of roles, right? That the self exists prior to community, right? That's that, that we are ultimately um, individuals, um, kind of atomistic individuals and our identities uh, are not kind of, they're not the product of community. Um, uh, and, and the communitarian view was, was basically the, was saying that, no, you cannot have selves uh, without community. community, right? It's community that kind of gives content to the self, right? And this was, this all came out of Standell's big critique of the, uh, the original position, Rawls's famous thought experiment, who based and he, you know, he imagined what people behind a kind of veil of ignorance, how they would collectively decide about, you know, the rules of society. And Sandel said, "Well, wait a second, that's crazy because if they're behind a veil of ignorance, it means they don't know their identity, and it means they're not really people, right? They don't have real selves, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you, you actually have to sort of, you know, people are not these kind of atomistic things that stand behind a veil of ignorance. They're they have particular commitments that derive from their, you know, the communities that they belong to and the particular socialization things that have happened in, you know, um, the families and all this kind of stuff. And, and so, but, but, you know, and actually what changed my whole view on this was, was Will's book, his first book, which was actually his PhD thesis, which is liberalism, community, and culture. Yeah. Right. Where he takes up this whole um, debate and tries to say that in many ways, there's a kind of straw man being created by uh, commu communitarians like Michael Sandel, and that ultimately liberalism does accept that humans, that, that individuals and selves are, you know, constituted by their communities, and that there there is a way of thinking about this that's not so black and white, right? And, and in a way, I think that. Um, in a way, I think that this is what Charles Taylor is advocating for. What you really want is you want to be able to have a recognition of the importance of community uh, by that, by which I mean like 
traditions and you know relationships and you know these things are absolutely central to people's identities right we want to live in a world uh, we'll flourish most in a world where people value these things and where the state is not constantly trying to uh, um, attack those things. And yet at the same time, you also want to let people reject the traditions that they grew up in, if they so chose, right? That's yeah. that's the sort of classic thing, right? You want people to be able to have the comfort of the tradition and uh, communities that they grow up in, while at the same time having the freedom uh, to leave, because you know sometimes you do, and and tradition and community can be completely kind of uh, suffocating. And so the real question, which to be honest, the liberal communitarian uh, distinction ultimately doesn't like resolve. The real question is, how do you strike that balance, <laughs> right? <laughs> how do you do that? And and both left and right struggle with that. I mean, if you look at any. And and this is this is central to uh, uh, not just religious communities, but political communities, right? Activist circles. Like, how do you both have sufficient? How do you both value the community as a whole and the traditions that keep you and define you as a community, while at the same time giving people freedom to think for themselves, to do their own thing, to go their own way, right? It's it's the central problem, right? And, you know, one of the reasons Durkheim, Neil Durkheim was kind of a central figure in my book is precisely because that is the question that he struggled with. It was the question of modernity too. It's like individual versus society, right? And and how do you strike that balance? Um, and, you know, I try and propose some through the case studies versions of, of how I think this could work, but you know, in a way... Well, but this is the interesting thing about religion, right? Because, I mean, we're talking about structure. I mean, this is the other thing, too, that I want to bring up. Because, I mean, Taylor and, I mean, all of these thinkers, a lot of them focus in on the idea of, of, of identity, right? The idea what the idea of, of the modern self. And how does that go out and come about, you know, through exactly the way you beautifully describe it, through, you know, construction or co-construction with community and stuff like that. But religion is much more... <laughs> I mean, in a certain way, religion is not against any of that. I mean, they would want a functional, you know, person to develop a good sense of self and sense of identity. But the idea of religion in a certain way, depending, I mean, where you, you know, what religion is, is the idea of transcendence, right? Is there any, you know, these sorts of experiences where the self all of a sudden becomes dissolved? And it's not to go necessarily be dissolved to become nothing, but a lot of them become nothing only to become fully more who they are to actually go and re-engage back in society. And your case study around the uh, addiction treatment and recovery in AA 12 you know, is a great example of that as well, right? Because a lot of them are wrestling with that, right? Or even some of them are wrestling with the ideas of, you know, their drug and juice states that they had originally when they started to go and consume various kinds of substances. And all of a sudden they come back and they're like, well, that's not sustainable. But yet those experiences have pointed me towards something. What is this something that we're actually going out and talking about? So maybe it's an idea of God or, you know, depending on what kind of reinterpretation you have. Um, so this is the other question to me that I want to, to talk to you about is that, I mean, it's not just meaning or hermeneutical sort of a, a interpretation of, of what all this is. I mean, religion focuses on, on the idea of these sort of transpersonal experiences. Um, and that's why I actually interviewed Sean Kelly and my interest in, you know, in humanistic psychology and people like Maslow that talk about the, these ideas of having peak experiences. Um, so I was wondering, 
you know, if, if you wrestled or do you think about some of that stuff in the background as you've been wrestling with these ideas of meaning and community and the idea of, of identity as well uh, throughout your writing? Yeah, so this is a, it's a great question. But I realize you're, you're not a theologian. You're not, you know, you, you even self-describe as a sociologist. I mean, I realize a sociologist is not necessarily a theologian. Or... <laughs> no, no. And, and yeah. you know, I mean, there, there are like, there's a sort of short version response and then there's a a day, the day long response, right? Which, <laughs> gotcha. um, and, and I mean the, so I'll give you the, you know, for obvious reasons, I'll give you the short version. Um, yeah. So I do think about these things, um, it, you know, and, um, but so I, for, for a couple of reasons, I don't really discuss them. Um, so the first is actually, it's a purely, you know, and your listeners will be disappointed probably to hear this, but it's a purely kind of disciplinary reason, which is to say, like, I wrote this book as a sociologist for sociologists and you just won't get published. <laughs> so, you know, if you start going down the, the, you know, if you start engaging with theological questions, um, gotcha. I mean, that's obviously a generality, but I think it's true. I think, I think it is true. Um, and, and so I'm not, I'm not totally, um, uh, I, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm making that up. Um, and I, I mean, I, and I have some evidence for that. You know, I wrote an afterword uh, that that didn't get included because uh, it it basically strayed into the the questions that you're that you're raising about. Um, you know, I was very aware while writing that my book itself could be seen as a sort of symptom of disenchantment, right? Which is to say, uh, yeah, it itself it could be seen as a as a kind of disenchanting force, right? I'm bringing a you know, social science is probably the it's not surprising to me that it was Max Weber, you know, one of the founding, quote unquote, fathers of of, of sociology that that, dis, that diagnosed the modern world as disenchant, disenchanted, right? Um, disenchantment and sociology have, you know, they're, they're very closely intimately related, right? And and part of the reason why, you know, if we do live in a disenchanted world, it's because of the the absolute dominance of social science as a kind of uh, a, a set of discourses, right? And and they shape how we think about ourselves and 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 truth and, and the world. And so I was very aware while writing that this could be uh, uh, a kind of force for disenchantment, uh, for lack of a better term. And and so I wrote this afterward to try and you know it was very brief, but try to say something about how I think you might be able to reconcile. The sociological analysis I give with a more, let's say, uh, you could say theological or psychological analysis, right? One which doesn't, um, which doesn't totally reduce spirituality to the social, right? But sees, you know, sees these experiences as not just reflective of some kind of collective consciousness, which is what I wanted to talk about, but also as maybe being a window into the divine of some, you know, or the transcendent. So I, I continue to believe that those two things are not irreconcilable. It's just the case that my book is just kind of mute on that other, on, on that other dimension. Uh, and, and, you know, I guess I should mention one other reason why I do that is because I think that 
at the very least, I'm offering a perspective that, that goes against the grain of, like there is, and I know this well, there are bookshelves full of books on spirituality, which focus purely on the kind of individual, um, the, the sort of spiritual path, right? Um, and, and I think that there's a lot of good in that, but I wanted to offer a, a different perspective on this to say that, because I am partly a communitarian, I do think that even our most transcendent experiences are in some sense dependent upon um, the existence of community and ritual, right? So, and, and I often think that if there's any trend, and I agree with Bella here, if there's any trend in modern religious life that we need to be, that needs to be checked, it's this, it's this trend, this sort of emphasis on individuals pursuing their own thing, regardless of the communities and traditions that they belong to, and more, more of a kind of balancing of a respect and, and appreciation for, yes, individual experiences of transcendence, but also the communal conditions that make those possible. Gotcha. Well, either way, I mean, uh, I'll say, I mean, like Bella, you strike a fine chord, my friend. I mean, I'm very... <laughs> Reading your book, it was the same thing when I was reading Bella, because I mean, I can figure out like, you know, like I knew in his saying that you actually quote quite well, you know, like, I mean, if you're doing uh, social science, it should be a form of public philosophy, right? If done right, right? So it should be concerned with the idea of the good and stuff like that. Um, and when I saw that in your work, I was like, nice, you know, and, uh, but as well, I mean, Bella is such a complicated figure. Um and I was never really able to go out and figure out, you know, like, like, is he a theologian? Is he a sociologist, an anthropologist? Like, where, how is he, you know, and at the end of the day, I just think he was an amazing philosopher that, you know, and, or even a philosopher of religion. So, and uh, his work is just, you know, outside of this world. Um, so, I mean, your book strikes a, a, along those lines for me, and it's one of the main reasons why I've been so excited. You know, reading Matt's work as well has been like this illuminating for me. Like, I'm just slow, like, like wow, like there's a young cohort of young professors right now, particularly Canadian philosophers and thinkers that are up and coming right now that are, to me, so exciting. So, I mean, thank you for, for that. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm a huge fan of both of your works. Um, I guess maybe we can end on that because I didn't have time to go and re um, read your review of uh, Bella's biography. Ah. You reviewed it, and I didn't have time to read it, or I couldn't get my hands on it. Uh, yeah, so I was well, curious to, yeah, to, to to maybe kind of end on that and your review of that book, and maybe you know, kind of Bella's legacy moving forward. Where how do you th you see that? Yeah. Well, look. Let me just say thank you so much for such kind words. Um, I'm humbled and, uh, yeah, I'm slightly embarrassed, but, um, <laughs> you know, one thing I'll, I'll just say, yeah, about that, that essay, which, um, it actually isn't public yet. So, uh, it, it's, it's in press, so it hasn't been. Oh, um, okay. I thought it was already yet. Out. Okay. Gotcha. It's not out. So I, and I'm happy to send it to you, um, if you'd like, but, you know, I, I wrote that book. So, um, there basically, if anyone who's interested in Robert Bella should go read, the recent biography of him uh, by an Italian sociologist by the name of Matteo Bartolini. And it's a really beautiful book. I mean, both the, the actual book itself is, is good. It, it's really well-written and, and it's, it's unbelievably well-researched. I think he spent like 20 years 
um, looking at letters, and also obviously read all of Bella's work, but also looked at personal letters, did interviews with his family members, like just, oh, wow. just okay. and he also, I think, spent uh, time with Bella himself before he passed away. Oh, so okay. it, it's, and you find out things about Bella. I mean, you know, which are really, I mean, juicy. Like I mean, things like about his sex life and oh no way and, okay no really like it really go, it it kind of mines mines Bella's psyche and personal history um, and you know things that happened to Bella like that I actually wasn't aware of you know two of his daughters died um, oh my god I didn't realize yeah that. like real tragedies that shaped his I think also his religious uh, leanings. Um, because he was a, a, kind of an avowed Marxist atheist in his uh, early adulthood, yeah, and then and he took know, refuge at McGill. Indeed, he did. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that, that was also new to me too. I didn't, I didn't know that he had a Canadian connection. Um, but you know, I, I guess I would say I think that Bella would would he definitely deserves the term theologian just as much as sociologist, right? Gotcha. He, you know, okay. ultimately he was a humanist. He really believed in just drawing from all of the humanities and social sciences, right. To, to provide what he called us, you know, a synoptic vision, right. Like there's these, these, these divisions between disciplines are ultimately arbitrary. They're the product of, you know, uh, professional guilds that are trying to kind of like protect their own intellectual turf more than they're not created in, in the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, right. They have their own sort of, um, there's vested interest to keep these divisions up. And, you know, obviously they, they, they have other, you know, they, they work to some extent, but they also, they are a barrier. And I think he, he recognized that, which is why he drew so broadly from different disciplines and he was just so good at it, um, at synthesizing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I continue to be indebted to his, his work. And, and that essay is just my attempt to try and spell out what I see as uh, the, the most important kind of strands within uh, within Bella's uh, thought and life. Great. Okay. Well, I mean, I look forward to to reading all of that, especially the biography as well. I've been eyeing that for a little it while. Is, it's really worth the read. It's really worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Super. Well, listen. I mean, I I, I so appreciate your time. Um, and you know, I'd love to eventually have you back on again and pick your brains. I know you guys, uh, I've got so much more work in the pipeline as well. Uh, you know, I mean, I keep encouraging Matt. I mean, I'm just so, I mean, I'm amazed with the productivity, but also the work that you guys are doing. And, uh, you know, since discovering your your collaboration, their short collaboration online up at Arrow Magazine and the idea of a new engaged left, I mean, it's been so inspiring for me uh, to read and to see you guys in action and your thinking and stuff like that. And uh, the fact that you're homegrown Canadian is... <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, no, we're rocking Canada, and I, yeah. and I hope, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I am a very, I am, I'm a very proud Canadian, so I, yeah. you know, I, I wear it uh, proudly for sure. Super. Okay. Well, to be continued. Thank you so Indeed. much for your time. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate it.